applying rhetoric to your writing. Oscar Wilde's preface to his classic Gothic novella is a quarry of golden nuggets by Walter Bound, first published in the Writing Cooperative. Let's contextualize this classic. Hey there, Walter Bound here. So, the picture of Dorian Gray and the preface to Dorian Gray. Fantastic piece, right? Oscar Wilde added the preface after he received so much heat and hate for the late Gothic and philosophical novella. His characters speak in witty and amoral epigrams, like Wilde, but does that mean the characters are manifestations of the actual Oscar Wilde? Lippincott's monthly magazine first published the work in July 1890 issue. Without Wilde's knowledge, they cut stuff. You know, because it was indecent. The work was very controversial. In the second edition of the work, he added the preface to address his critics who claimed he wrote an immoral work and that it was indecent or whatever else they found objectionable. The art of rhetoric should not be lost. So let's dig through the preface, a rhetorical analysis like a mining expedition. That means I'll explore the choices Wilde makes in crafting this masterpiece to make his point. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Many of you are like, no duh, <laughs> but hey, stay with me. I think this is very interesting stuff. Why would I waste my time if I didn't, right? So the preface is also a work of persuasion. So what is Wilde persuading us to believe? It just may be the very opposite of what he is writing. It's as if he's writing the preface to appease his critics, to make them listen, and to make them agree with his position about art. He's like, listen, it's just a work of art. Don't think I'm crazy just because I wrote some crazy stuff. But really, that could be just a ruse, you know, to throw them off his real position. And those who are skilled readers will discern his true intention and his ultimate message. I do have a message in my art. I want to address forbidden topics at the time, like homosexuality, which was illegal in Britain at the time in the late 19th century. Heck, it carried on further even than that into the 20th century. A deep dive into his work. Enough context, right? I'll use rhetorical terms for you to know and understand, and also uh, for you to use in your writing. Application is everything. He opens, the artist is the creator of beautiful things. This is a declarative sentence, a simple sentence. Subject and verb are placed at the beginning. This is his opinion. It sets the topic for discussion. This seems like a truism, valid on its surface, but it's a, an effective hook. It catches the reader's attention like a worm dangling on a hook. It is so simple, who can disagree? So if you're writing a persuasive essay, don't come right out and state your opinion. Your reader may say, <laughs> I don't agree with you, and then stop reading. In the beginning, let everyone agree with you. It's a great way to create, you know, a bond. He writes, to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. 
This is called antithesis, using opposites like night and day and heaven and hell, reveal, conceal. This creates symmetry and balance in writing. Readers see this time and again in the Bible, Abe Lincoln, Martin Luther King. They know how to use antithesis. The statement is also ironic. Why? As a writer, or really any artist, don't you want to share the world with what is going on with you? And how do you see the world? Can we believe what we read on the surface? Is Oscar Wilde really being serious here? He was initially criticized for creating an immoral work that must have revealed his immorality. So he added the preface as a statement about art is more essential than the artist. Me, Oscar Wilde, Walter Bound. Why would I want to reveal the inner artist? Again, this is debatable. Is art greater than the artist? Should we cancel or condemn a great work because of the statements or beliefs of the artist? For example, is Stephen King an awful person because he creates horrible people and situations in his stories? Well, no. I once got in trouble at school for sharing a story of mine. Oh, boy. Something I wrote made a student uncomfortable, and she thought I was not a decent person because of a situation in the story. Okay, rule number one. I learned not to share any of my professional work, my creative work, fiction and that stuff, with students who needed something to use against me months later to justify a poor performance in my course. It's a tough out world out there for academics in a pro-consumer world. Rule number two, just because I write about a character who doesn't think something weird or different or immoral doesn't mean I'm immoral. My grandfather said we're all insane inside our own minds, but the truly insane act upon those thoughts. Vice. We love reading and watching shows about people who are working through troubles and difficulty, maybe even disturbing. The critic, Wilde says, is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest, as the lowest form of criticism, is a mode of autobiography. Here, he addresses the critics of art, his immoral art. As readers or consumers of art, we are critical. Oh, I love that show. I hate that show. And these are my reasons. What are your reasons for not liking The Americans, You, or Breaking Bad? The proper role of critics. So critics can see things in art that other people cannot see. It's why we love food critics. They're usually chefs, and they know the business of food, the art of cuisine. But he uses antithesis again, high-low, and criticizes critics for only seeing through one's eyes. So if you're a critic of art and you only see through your vision of the time period, you may think Vincent Van Gogh is garbage or Melville's Moby Dick is awful. The art was not wrong. The critics at the time were wrong. This is where autobiography gets in the way of sight and appreciation. Then Oscar Wilde writes, those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are cultivated. He's doing many things here. First, he's using an aphorism, a terse, short statement of truth, like, like a proverb. 
he uses antithesis again. This is his principal rhetorical mode, ugly, beautiful. Those refers back to critics of art and his work. Can one be corrupt and charming? <laughs> well, yeah. You'll need to read Dorian Gray or watch Lucifer on Netflix or that show you to see what I mean. It's, they're fun shows, at least, at least in the beginning. Um, they're corrupt, but so charming. Imagine Satan trying to be good. So the critics who can see the ugly in his beautiful work are not worth listening to. But the critics who see beauty within the beauty, well, that's solid and great. He continues, for these there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. The elect are the chosen ones, the highest, the ones with the greatest clarity and insight. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. So if you see a book that has been banned for immorality, like Harry Potter, The Grapes of Wrath, or Catch in the Rye, or Huck Finn, Oscar Wilde would disagree. Is it well written or poorly written? Of course, we can debate this. But he's addressing his critics here. My book is not immoral because it is so well written. And can anyone disagree with that? Hey, I'm Oscar Wilde, right? I'm a celebrated Irish writer who was the toast of the West End in London. Who are my rivals? Shaw, maybe Whistler? <laughs> no. He uses another aphorism, often tied to antithesis. Moral, immoral, well, bad. Critics thought his novel was immoral because so many people do immoral things. You have to read the book to see what they say and do. But since it was so well written and therefore beautiful, it should stand as beauty. This also might cause you confusion, he writes. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his face in the glass. The difference between illusion and illusion. Here he's using an illusion, a reference to another piece of art, person, character, and not to be confused with illusion. Using illusions helps the reader understand a concept because we can connect. Like if you used, he looked like Harry Potter. Potter is the illusion. I felt as helpless as Baby Yoda, or I stood proud like Achilles. Using illusions helps the writer by not needing to go into detail. The image has been pre-established and connected like an archetype, a primary image that exists already. Not everyone is going to get the illusions. <laughs> Have you ever read T.S. Eliot? That's fine. Use the illusions that resonate with you. Allow the intellectually curious reader to uncover some gems. If they don't get it, that's okay. Oh, I don't get this, but let me move on. It won't be a barricade to understanding, unless, of course, you're T.S. Eliot or David Foster Wallace. So who is Caliban? When you're reading stuff and you're not sure, just ask Uncle Google. It's, it's really that simple. Caliban is a famous character from Shakespeare's The Tempest. He is an illiterate native of the dark complexion on an island that was conquered by the white European man named Prospero, who's a magician. He civilizes and abuses the native and teaches him language, English, and Caliban curses this because he now has language to curse his awful fate. 
The story is a parable of the harm of colonization. Shakespeare was writing this at the end of his productive life when Europe was colonizing the New World. The dueling feuds between realism and romanticism. These two terms are opposites. One stresses logic and reason, the other emotion and intuition. Mozart was classical and Beethoven a romantic. It's different periods in history. The 18th century was largely the age of reason. Thomas Jefferson, uh, Voltaire, Adam Smith, Ben Franklin, our boy Thomas Paine. And the late 18th and 19th century was the romantic period. Realism comes back in the late 19th and 20th centuries. In America, romanticism ended in 1861. Why? <laughs> uh, that's Civil War. So someone like Jefferson would not want to see the savage in the mirror. He's like Spock from Star Trek and using logic and reason. And I know the dude owned slaves and his position on slavery got worse as he grew older. And a romantic like Walt Whitman in 1850 would hate not seeing the savage in the mirror. He was interested in the common man and the roughs on the street, a type of noble savage. Get it? The spirit of the times. So it's the same character being viewed through a different set of eyes, a different lens. This is where it's essential to understand the German term zeitgeist, the spirit of the times when examining a work of art. The passage above also uses anaphora, beginning sentences or clauses with the same word or phrase. The 19th century is repeated twice. He also uses antithesis, of course, opposites, but also ends with epistrophe, ending the sentence or clause with the same word or phrase, like Lincoln's of the people for the people, and by the people, while repeats glass to keep the unity of the passage. It's perfectly packaged, the symmetry, the beauty, and the meaning. Oh, let's get back to Oscar Wilde. He writes, the moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. Notice the brilliant use of opposites here to enhance meaning. The morals of the writer help the writer know what to write about, but the morality of art exists in an imperfect world. It's ironic. He says, no artist has ethical sympathies. Is this really what he believes? Is he tricking us? Is his sincerity so beguiling that he makes us believe him? Or is something else happening here? Can this be seen as sarcasm? A writer with two audiences. We need to read not just between the lines, but over and under the lines. Perhaps Wilde has one message for one specific audience and another more subtle message for his true readers. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. Does Wilde really believe this? Should art exist just for itself? Or should art exist for change? For a social cause or revolution? Oscar Wilde was thrown in jail for homosexuality in Britain. It was a crime. He later died in exile in France. So a work that shows men loving other men, even on a platonic stage, may show that Wilde does have ethical sympathies 
and that gay men and women should be allowed to live the way they want. This is where the waters get tricky. But sometimes the moral of the story gets in the way of the story. It's too obvious. The word morbid means characterized by or appealing to an abnormal or unhealthy interest in disturbing or important subjects, especially death and disease. Poe isn't morbid because he writes about unpleasant things, right? Wilde says that the writer can write about anything and still make it beautiful as art. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist materials for an art. This, once again, my friends, is antithesis. And also epistrophe using the same word art at the end of the sentence. He creates balance and enhances the point. Why do we crave horror movies and love films like Pulp Fiction? Well, artists use vice and virtue as material. Actually, Stephen King has a great essay called Why We Crave Horror Movies. Yeah, check that out here. From the point of view of form, Wilde writes, the type of all the arts is an art of a musician. From the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Great writers require great readers. Readers can read a story and understand the plot, the story, but the real job of the reader is to understand the symbols. Moby Dick is God, the protagonist of the novel. Hagrid is the wild man archetype. The critic's job, or my job as a professor of English, is to get you to understand the deeper depths, to probe for meaning. But Wilde warns us about those depths. Will you like what you see down there? Like Adrienne Rich in her great poem, Diving into the Wreck. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. This is ironic. It's not really the work that mirrors art. It's the reader, the viewer of the play. It's the listener of music that really mirrors art. Wilde flips the whole notion of art and the ideal of art. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. Why is so much written about the Bible, the Torah, Shakespeare, the great Gatsby? So many articles and essays and films and denominations? It's because the work is new, complex, and vital. Great artists are often ignored in their lifetime. Van Gogh, Melville, Fitzgerald, well, at least the great Gatsby, the list is endless. It is because they were ahead of their times, and the critics didn't get it. Melville said he wrote Moby Dick, seeing the humpback of a whale in the mountains in the Berkshires from his home called Arrowhead, for an audience that did not exist yet. How many popular writers from 1850 do we now read? Useful things should not be admired too much, like a smartphone, lol, right? All art is quite useless. Oh, Wild, how you tease us. Again, does Wild really mean this? What does he mean by useful? Will it cure cancer? Will it help me sleep? Will it heat up my food more quickly? Is it okay that art is useless? Does Wild really mean this? This type of aestheticism, 
art for art's sake, it's really open for debate. It's where we get into the overt and the implied thesis, much like in A Modest Proposal by our boy Jonathan Swift, the use of wit. But knowing so much about Wilde and being so far ahead of his time, his brilliant comedies of manners, bringing the wit and satire of Austin and Charles Dickens into the modern age, I see that Wilde is tricking us. After all, I prayed and left flowers for him at his gravesite in Paris. Wilde whispered the truth to me. I felt his presence. Well, that happens, right? Whenever we read the words of a remarkable author or hear the score of a talented musician. While dying in Paris, he said of the wallpaper, the horrible wallpaper, well, one of us had to go. There is a message here. Homosexuality is not a crime. It is not immoral. And it just took people ages to catch up. And alas, many still need this need. And Wilde taught me how to use wit. I tell my students, my wife and I have one thing in common. We're both in love with me. It takes a while. Some snicker politely. Is this really who we have all year? They must wonder. Ah, thanks for reading and listening. Follow me at Down With Bound and on Medium. Thank you so much, peeps. Cheers.